Listen, I want you to know from the door, right now. We're going to get something straight right now. I know you the boss, big man everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> but here, you are on equal ground. You're going to get the shit if the shit requires giving. I, 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 I'm here for the smoke, my brother. <laughs> I, I, I'm here for the smoke. My very good friend, my former young boy, Tart Brooks, who is currently... President of Combs Enterprises, welcome to the show, sir. Great, great to be here, my brother. You, you, you always my big brother, whether you want to be or not. So, so, so I, some, some things won't change. I'm taking I, it. I, I be here. <laughs> Listen, there's so much that we want to talk about today. We're going to breathe through this thing, take it slow. We're not going to rush anything. If you want to go long, go long, because I have real questions. I want to know where we're going under your leadership, because we are going under your leadership. Okay. Yeah. Let's start with this. My Black Party. I saw the announcement six months ago or so. Tell, tell us what it is and where it's at these days. Yeah, so, so it's our Black Party. Our Black Party. Our, our Black Party is a, a political party created to have the agenda of the African-American community front and center at all times, right? Too many times... You know, the major political parties have used our community as, you know, a, a chess piece to play mm -hmm. at different points. And if you go back to, you know, the, the, the debates between, you know, Biden and Trump, the issues of the African-American community maybe got three minutes combined of airtime. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's not enough. Like we, we have major, deeply seated, systematic issues that have to be addressed. So the idea with our black party is to say, look, we're going to push for a platform that pushes our agenda. And the agenda that our black party has adopted is the one from um, the, the black futures lab. So, so what they didn't spend a lot of energy doing is trying to come up with a whole different point of view. There's some great thinking that went into that, you know, broadly makes sense for a lot of folks in our community. And so now um, it's in the process, our black party is in the process of building its grassroots national infrastructure. Right. This is something that, that is going to be impactful in local races in state races uh, and in federal races. So it's not an effort that's just going to pop up when it comes time for a presidential race. And so, therefore, it's important for that team. And it's an amazing team leading that folks who have led and held political positions um, in, in for, you know, from local local communities all the way on up to build that infrastructure so that when it is time to mobilize, they have the pieces they need. I mean, one of the things to think about, right, um, and, 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 you know, you can go back to Malcolm X speeches where he talks about it, right? Like, our people haven't been done right over time, period, irrespective of what party is in, is in, is in office. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the stats that I use, because, you know, I think for me, the, the, the wealth of a community, you know, is, is a great representation of, of, of its well-being, right? In 1863, before slavery was abolished, Black people controlled a half a percent of the wealth in the United States. So 0.5 percent of the wealth of the whole country was held by a community that was primarily you know, still slaves at that point. Mm -hmm. In 2019, 2020, black people control 1.5 percent of the wealth of the United States. So leave aside like the, the, the notions and the data that you hear about the wealth gap growing. 
we've never had anything in this country. Right. Right. And so, like, in as much as, you know, we look at progress made by different folks and we try to assess which party we're likely to like, we haven't made any progress. Right. In real ways that matter. And, and those ways trickle down into why our health outcomes are worse. Our mm-hmm. education outcomes are worse. All those things are fundamentally tied to like our well-being. And so for me, you know, as a person who looks to do business first, I say, like, well, where, where's the money? Yeah. And we don't have it. Right. And, and, and so and so that's why we then say, OK, if the change that needs to happen are going to be in some respects policy driven, we need to make sure we always have voices that are fighting for us from a policy perspective. Like, I personally would love to see a world where every election, you know, the black vote is up for grabs. And like we're giving that only to the people who say we commit to these things and we're committing publicly. We're, we're telling the world this is where we stand. And like maybe sometimes that means it's going Democrat. Maybe sometimes that's going Republican. But right. That, but it's got to go where it's got to go. So you think in the in the um, in the adoption of our black party from a, let's say, individual perspective, do you think that are you advising that folks go and register independent and then kind of follow the, the dogma of the property? So, so, party? so what, 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 the, what the leaders of the party are saying, you know, very, very clear to folks is you can join as a Democrat. You can join as a Republican. Right. Like, mm-hmm. like, like whatever your core philosophies are can be what your core philosophies are. But if you want to put black people first, join and be a part of this movement. OK. Right. Like, 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 th- 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 like, I think we have to get beyond that existing two party construct to say there are a bunch of stuff that we probably agree on when it comes to black people and what we need. And let's start with that agreement and push for the second. Would you describe the overall like so you've mentioned the the wealth piece? Would you describe that overall push as as a progressive one, conservative one, a middle one, a welcoming one? How would you describe because uh, you were getting away from Democrat and Republican. Yeah, so, so I think if you looked at the, the platform of our Black Party and you went through the things, I think there are certainly going to be elements of it that some folks would, would consider progressive. You know, when you look at the stances on criminal justice reform, you look at the stances on things like, you know, cannabis legalization and so on and so forth. But I also believe, because I know some of these folks who are, you know, tend, black people tend to, to skew conservative that believe in the need for our communities to be empowered to create wealth. Right. Like th- those are things that like like empowering entrepreneurs, tax structures that enable them to succeed. Like those are all things that may skew conservative. Like those are things that are very relevant to our community. And so I, I think what you'll find if it, it works, at least in my mind, is like you're able to get some of that thought to say, like, look, while this may be traditionally a progressive paradigm and I may be a conservative person when I think about a lot of things, um, I understand what this is relative to our community. Right. Because. Our community in this country has been uniquely, you know, positioned terribly forever. Yeah. I started off in slavery, graduated to second class citizenry, um, and are now in a state where, like, you know, there is a lot of talk around unwinding a lot of the, the, the reper, you know, repercussions from that second class citizenry. But like a lot of not a lot has changed in material ways when you just look at when you just look objectively at the state of our people. Right. What kind of resistance are you getting from because you're in so many different rooms? Right. What kind of resistance do you get? What does that sound like? Yeah. I mean, look, like there are folks that say, you know, one is a distraction. There are folks that say, 
you know, there's critical mass within the Democrat Party. So if you try to start to siphon people off, you're only going to hurt the, you know, black politicians that are affiliated. And, and, and so, like, th there are a lot of those things. Um, but I think the, the model I actually like to, to, to use when I think about where this thing goes and what it becomes, and this, again, this is Tarek's perspective. The folks who are leading the party may take a different point of view, and I'm okay with that. Yep. Tarek's view is, like, I would love it to evolve into something that's like APAC or something like the NRA. Where like, like, you know very clearly where they stand. You know very clearly, you know who they're who they are fighting for. And if you want their support, you got to be willing to come to them, sit down, and say yes. And it should be a negotiation. Right. Okay. I, I want this Senate seat. So if I get in, I'm going to do these things that align with your agenda. Can I get your support? And then the Black Party says we're going to support this person because and, and be and the, our Black Party should be willing to look across the lines and say like. If you are committed to fighting for black people in a public way where you're going to stand behind the words you use and it's something we can hold you accountable to, then we'll throw, you, throw the support behind you. Mm -hmm. Like that, that to me is like the dream state. When I look at how APAC works, when I look at how NRA, like that's what they're able to consistently do. Like they're, like they're very clear about where they stand, who they're fighting for, what their uh, agenda is. And the folks who are willing to sign up for that publicly get their support. Right. I think that moves us nicely into the other piece that you yeah. guys are being very vocal about right now. Our fair share. Yeah. Yeah. So, look, our, our fair share came out of, um, you know, just recognition, of, a, a kind of pattern recognition, if you will. Right. So one of the things that, that, that Puff and I talk a lot about is, is the fact that, like, just given the history of black people in this country, like we have to accept in a lot of ways we're just in last place. And being in last place, particularly when it comes to the business, means we're vulnerable. So, like, leave the pandemic aside for a minute. You know, black people struggle with access to capital. We get, you know, a tiny percentage of venture capital. We're twice as likely to be turned down for business loans. So if you don't, if you're not well capitalized, you know, you're vulnerable every day, but you're particularly vulnerable to shocks to the system. So if something mm -hmm. happens that shocks the system, it could be game over. So when the pandemic hit, we looked at this saying, man, like this actually has the opportunity to be like an extinction level event for black businesses, right? Because most black businesses are very small, but right. they're important to the community they serve for a whole host of reasons. Um, so we said, well, we can do about it. Stimulus package comes out, CARES Act, PPP. We see this program. We say, okay, like there's intent to get these businesses capital. That's a good thing. But then you take a deeper look and you say, how successful has the federal government has the Small Business Administration been at getting minority community stimulus capital? And the track record is not great, not because of lack of intent, but just because there are systematic barriers to that. Right. Right. If you look at the, the Great Recession in 2008, you know, black people only received two and a half percent of SBA loan guarantee. Right. You're not going to help save communities with that level. So what we said is let's build a platform that does a couple of things. One, we're going to educate people on what the PPP program is and why it's important. Mm -hmm. We're gonna educate our people on how you actually complete an application successfully, including ensuring that your loan will be forgiven because it's a very unique part of this, this program that the loans can be forgiven if used for the appropriate things. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece is we are gonna connect potential borrowers to lenders who are committed to reaching this community. So if you look at the work we did over the first phase, you look at the work we did over this phase, we have some great lenders. JP Morgan's on board. Square is on board. PayPal's on board. 
Cabbage is on board. Mm-hmm. Great, strong black bank out of Baltimore, the Harbor Bank of Maryland is on board. We had a couple of CDFIs on board. So we had a great contingent of folks who were willing to do that work. And what we found is that for every one of those channels, we were the most efficient pipeline to getting black businesses to them. Right. Right. Um, the the uh, Ohio State University, I think it was UC Irvine, did a study that did that that said for federal programs to be effective at reaching minority communities, the use of intermediaries like our fair share are critically important. And the reason why they're important um, is because of really you know, two things. First, the biggest barrier that stands between you know black folks and these kinds of programs is a trust barrier. Mm-hmm. We don't trust the banks because they they haven't treated us right historically. We don't trust the government because we don't government doesn't treat us right. So you need an intermediary to say this is good for you. This is a functioning program. It works. You know, if you go with these people, I can tell you these people are going to do right by you, right. And so that's a very important step to be that intermediary and to kind of make that transition uh, helpfully. The and message, the message, and the messenger both count. It matters. It matters because like people have good reason not to trust the folks that they don't trust. And again, that's not to say that that all of the energy that you're seeing now is not well intended and that people want to see great outcomes. But you can't just erase the history of what it's been like. Right. right? Like, like those those things are ingrained in our people almost at the like genetic level because of how we've been treated um, in our experience in this country. This is very much the same conversation happening with the the vaccine. It, it, it's exactly that. I, I had conversations with 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 experts um, because we we are through. Um, you know, I used to work for a company called Bridgewater Associates, led by a gentleman named Ray Dalio. Um, he's a mentor to myself and to Puff. Um, he he funded a a health justice um, you know department or initiative at New York Presbyterian Church. Uh, excuse me, New York Christian Hospital. Um, he he gave me access to talk to some experts there to understand, like, learn more about the vaccines, how they work and all that stuff. And part of what I was just describing is, like, when, when you hear Black people be apprehensive, like, understand that it comes from real deep-seated stuff, from people right. experimenting on slaves to the Tuskegee experiment to the Henrietta Lacks. This, they have, like, like, there is a long track record of not being treated right by the medical industrial complex. Like, Black women will still tell you, like, when they say when they tell doctors and nurses they're in pain, people don't listen. They don't feel heard. Right. So like so why why shouldn't you expect us to be to be to be apprehensive? And, and the other thing is, is historically our participation in clinical tests were always really low. And mm-hmm. I think in this these particular vaccines, you know, that's been a focused effort and that's better than it historically was. But there's also the point of view that like, how do you know I'm gonna be okay if you didn't test it on me? Right. And not like you know, like, you know, super healthy young black man who's 18. I mean, not like talk to the like, did you test it on a brother with hypertension, a sister with diabetes, mm-hmm. high cholesterol, you know, all those things that disproportionately impact our community. And, and from the data I've been able to collect, it seems like there's been a concerted effort to do just that with these vaccines. But again, it gets to the whole thing of if you look at the problems that our community faces broadly. We can talk about politics. We can talk about money. We can talk about health. We can talk about education. Like today, everybody can be well-intended. But if you don't really factor in the, the, the cumulative impact of everything that's happened throughout the years and be able to look at that openly and honestly, mm-hmm. right? You know, I, I heard and I was watching something and folks were like talking about how important it was 
that in you know, World War II, you know, black men were able to fight alongside, you know, white soldiers for the U.S. and fight for the country. The difference is when they came back, they couldn't get the same benefits of the GI Bill and the mortgage loans and all that stuff. And like those are the things that through time, just because of the way money works, right, the way assets and, and, you know, accumulate value, the way money compounds through time, you start to see that picture where there's right. a diversion. Yep. And, and, and those things matter when you start to say, OK, today, why are we in the state we're in? Like it's not it's not an accident. Like it's the cumulative effect of right. systematic treatment. And, and every topic we go around, we're, we're going to run back into that same thing. That's an important point that you're talking about in terms of all of the interconnected systems, because when we talk about stuff that is oppressive and systemic, it functions in all of those systems. I am a uh, socialist, strong Marxist leanings. I consider myself a, a participatory capitalist. Uh, I like stuff. I'm not interested in being rich. I don't care about it. Uh, I think that wealth is vital. I have the exact same reluctance when it comes to systemic and systematic ways that we can build wealth and engaging and working with the systems. Like you mentioned, the same sort of healthy disrespect, not disrespect, the same sort of, of, of healthy uh, uh, lack of trust, right, or distrust in our healthcare system in general. And I say that as someone who can't wait to get the COVID vaccine, right? And I think that speaks to an ambivalence that really just inundates black folks. So how do you all go about specifically addressing it? Because we're gonna see it in health, we're gonna see it in wealth, we're gonna see it in education, as you mentioned. How do you all go about building that trust and bridging those gaps to get you know, folks like me, I don't trust banks coming at me with money. I don't trust people coming to me, offering me money, right? Yeah. Even yeah. the ones who intend nothing but the best for me. How do you all navigate that? Yep. So, so we saw that. So just really quickly, though, I, like I just by, by the way you talked about your leanings, I think is a perfect example. Like, B, when you were talking about like our black party, right? like I, I consider myself mostly a free market capitalist. Like, I, I believe nobody should stand in my way of the pursuit of happiness. And if I have great ideas and the ability to make money from those ideas within reason, I, I shouldn't be held back. Right. I do believe there's a, a place for regulation, all that stuff. But the idea that bonds us, my brother, like you are socialist Marxist, is like we are black. Malcolm X said you know, in the Ballad of the Bullet speech, he said, like, they're not hanging you because you're Baptist. They're not hanging us because I'm Muslim. They're hanging us because we're black. And so, like, that's the commonality that, like, we can be able to think through the places where we see a line and through 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 organizations like our Black Party push agenda. Now, on the particular thing that you're talking about, I think, like, one of the things I really appreciate about Puff that I think is underrated is how, like, committed to, like, black people he is. Like, Puff is as black as the inside of your Ah, like, like he, he he does not hide it like like that like that's that's who he is and I think then his track record provides such a level of authenticity right so even if we had we've never done anything like our fair share before but look at his track record of putting black people on in positions to create wealth for themselves look at the jobs he's created look at the executives he's molded look at the businesses he he's, he built that that are focused on our people I think those are the things that lend a unique credibility to him to be able to say Look, I'm not a banker. I'm not the person that's going to loan you money. But like with my lens and my experience, and I've had good experiences in business and I have had not so great ones. 
But like I've met with these folks and I believe what they want to be able to do for this particular initiative mm -hmm. is sincere. And it's something that you that you desperately need. Like the, 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 the challenge of this situation, particularly throughout the pandemic, whether it's, you know, do I apply for PPP money or do I take the vaccine is there is no risk free option. Right. Like th there is risk on either side. Mm -hmm. Yes, the bank could jerk me and there might be a loophole and I might have to pay the money back or I can go out of business and now I can't feed my family. Like, yes, there could be a side effect to this vaccine that I should reasonably worried about, but there's also COVID impacts that we may not even really know the extent of right now as we're still new. Like, everything is an expected value trade-off, right? And so like, people just need to try to get the information to, to make that trade-off for themselves. So a, a big part of what we did for our fair share in terms of you know, helping people understand what it is, is committed. we're just going to give you the data. Let's just give you all the facts. Well, we've been able to verify the facts so you don't have to worry about, you know, anything else going on. We have people come to us and be like, you know, I think I qualify, but my uncle said, don't trust the feds. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And, and look, uncle might have had a great reason to say that, but let's, let's just look at the data. Right. If you had a payroll and you can show two and a half months of this payroll, you can take a loan in that amount. And if you spend it on payroll, they're going to forgive it. Hmm. Like it's documented. The government says so. The treasury says so. The SBA, like, like helping people understand, like I, I can't speak to that other experience that uncle had, but I can tell you this particular thing. So we, one, are very careful and deliberate and, and, and we understand the value of that stamp, that trust. Like we don't give it to anybody. Like, like we, we launch a new favor of a Ciroc. It doesn't come out until Puff tastes it and says, yes, this tastes like something I can stand behind with integrity. And we apply that same thing with everything well, look, that we do. On that note, you're doing what we've talked about so far are like social impact initiatives that you guys are you know, championing. And that's that's what I expect of you, quite honestly. Like both of you guys, this is what we expect of you. You are who you are. You are who we know you to be. Right. I trust you with all that. That's not even your core business, right? So let's talk about that for a minute. What are like the core businesses that you're running right now? That's, that's, that's perfect. And, it, and this gets back to my point around me being a free market capitalist, because at, at, at its root level, what allows us to do these things is our success running good businesses. Right. So when you look at the Combs Enterprise portfolio, so in my, in my role as president of Combs Enterprise, I oversee our full portfolio of businesses and investments work with an amazing team of people to make sure we're creating value every day. And then we also are constantly on the look for new and innovative things we can do to add to the portfolio. Um, right now we're in spirits um, with Sirac Vodka and Delion Tequila, both in partnership with Diageo, the biggest spirits company in the world. Um, we have Revolt TV and Media, which is our television and digital platform, an unapologetically hip hop network focused on the culture, but with a lens towards um, you know, social justice and helping folks understand the world around them. Um, we have Bad Boy Records, which is the, 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 the foundation of it all, the legacy record label that, that, that kind of built everything, not just from a provided the initial money to do things, but it also is the ethos yeah. of how we operate. Like we, we can't stop, won't stop every day across all of our portfolios. Mm -hmm. right? um, um, we have Aqua Hydrate, which is our portfolio performance water, so high alkaline water, um, very good for your body, restoring electrolytes. Um, we still, we, we sold the majority of, of, of Sean John back in 2016, but we still hold a minority share of that. Uh, very important business. 
Um, and then we're, we, we have three charter schools, capital preparatory schools. We have one in Bridgeport, Connecticut, one in Harlem, New York. And just this fall during quarantine, we opened one in the Bronx. And if I could take a second on the schools, like, like the notion of opening a brand new school in the middle of a pandemic is, is a feat. Yeah. Right. So you can imagine how excited we are to get those, those those children in the Bronx, those learners back on back, not back to their new campus for the first time. Right. It's mm-hmm. really a big deal. At our school in Harlem this year, we have our first class of seniors. And I'm proud to say that like 100 percent of those seniors have been accepted in the four year college. That's great. Those kids are approaching a million dollars in in, uh, in scholarships. So like that's the stuff. And again, like I spend time on that. And again, it goes back to that social good. But like what powers it is like. We sell the best vodka. We selling this vodka. We selling these drinks. <laughs> like, like we produce amazing content, whether that's you know Bad Boy Records or whether that's what's on Revolt. We got some amazing new shows coming out. Like you know, we had this new new show came out called The Crew League, where like these the, these rappers and their crews have these basketball teams, and they're playing basketball, and it's fun to watch, and it's crazy, and see these kids in a different light. But the importance is it's great content for an audience. Like we're delivering value. Like we're not we're not. It's not. It's not charity work, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I create something of value, I should be able to earn a, earn a return on that. And so, what you're seeing at Revolt, for for example, is you know we added 35 new advertisers last year, right? Because we're delivering value to to our audience, and advertisers want to be able to reach that audience because you know, as you both know, hip hop is now the driving force in culture. Yeah. And so, if we own hip hop as authentically as anybody, with Sean Combs as our our chairman. We then are helping people say, like, we don't really understand hip hop. Help us figure out how to get there. And so then you get relationships with a with a state farm and Adidas, with a Nike, with a this, with a that. Like that, that, that all builds from there. So like really at the core of everything we do is, is doing great business. And I think where, where Puff and I are just really aligned is to say, if we do great business, we should be able to hire more people. Right. So we're empowering people. If we do great business, we're going to have vendors and relationships. And so we can hire black businesses to be partners and do other things. If we do great business, we then have capital available to do things that won't have the same level of return, but have social impact that matters. Because ultimately, you know, the way he views the world, like at this point, you know, it's it's legacy. He he just crossed crossed the 50 threshold. And so he's thinking about what that second mountain looks like. And it's for him, it's about using everything he's been able to amass, you know, money, relationships, resources, network, platform, to empower our people. And so what you see is this consistent thread of, you know, doing great business, figuring out a way to kind of be helping the community at the same time in different in different ways. Got it. Let me take you uh, historical for a second. Just think back. Uh, here's I'm going to give you the, the out here, first of all. Uh, I didn't give you any questions in advance, so I expect you maybe to pause or stumble a little bit. That's all right. <laughs> you were never going to get those questions. <laughs> all right. I see, I see how you did that. <laughs> go back to go back to high school, Tart, Geronimo Tart. Just tell me about one lesson you learned there that that changed your that changed your you know your your uh, trajectory. You know, I tell you, it's a funny thing. So, so look, my. My dad has always been my inspiration, my first role model, you know, advisor, mentor, friend, anything, anything. Like, I, I absolutely was blessed that anything anybody could ever want in a dad. My dad was that for me. You know, a lot of folks remember my dad from being like the loud little league coach, 
you know, our house was always the one like when 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 the crew had problems at home, they come chill at our house for a little while, let it blow up. Like we, I, I was blessed with that. I remember um, my dad took me. He was speaking at an inroads event in Newark, New Jersey, and he took me there. And like at the time, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm not even in Like, why are you bringing me this? Like, what, like, why do I need to do this? Why does this have to be a part of my Saturday? And a, a part of what I saw and I learned was his commitment to kind of mentoring and empowering others. Mm-hmm. And like, I remember him talking that day, talking about how like, like because people had looked out for him to help him kind of get to where he got to, it, it, was, it was a duty he had to make sure, one, this community of kids in North saw him and understood like this was a path. Like, like this is a thing you can aspire to. But then his commitment to say like, I'm going to give these folks as much of my time as possible. Right. And so for me, I've always saw my journey and my career in much the same way. Like, like, look, I, 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 there are things that I want in life. I, I, I want to achieve certain milestones. Like, I want to be able to take trips and see the world, right? But, like, there, there, I, I've never lost that desire to want to be able to kind of reach back and pull people along at every mm-hmm. stage. So, like, even when I went to Howard, like, I, I did the Big Brother program every year I was there. Because as much as I didn't want to leave the yard on an afternoon when it was beautiful, <laughs> I felt the commitment to go up the street to the, the elementary school and spend time with those kids, right? Because right. then, like, I was so moved by seeing like that 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 moment with my dad to say, "Oh no, this is part of it." Mm-hmm. Right? Like, like paying it forward is not just when you finish. Like, like you wait till you get to a hundred million dollars and you say, "Like now nah, I'm going to get a billet." Nah, like you can do it along the way that in ways that help people's journey. And that's always been a part of what I what I've done, and it's been a consistent thread. You know, really through my entire, my entire career. Right now, I imagine like my sons are eighteen and nineteen right now, and and in their minds, they know everything already. So, so you you were learning from dad at that point, but you probably in your head might have known everything. Then you went off to Howard, right? Mm-hmm. What what did you when did what? Give me a moment, any moment, again from there that time period that also informed you or changed your trajectory at how you know in undergrad phase. So, so what's interesting, fun, like funny, when, I, when I'm figuring out where I could go to school, you know, like there were a couple of experiences that were really impactful, right? So one, you know, did the college tour as a high school student, you get to Howard and you see that and you're just like, like this exists, like this is a real thing, right? Like, 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 you know, amazingly talented black people studying history and chemistry and engineering and that, like, like, dude. I just hadn't seen it. Like I wasn't exposed to that. Like I, I didn't see that before. So there was also like a, a bit of humility to say like, like there's actually a lot. I don't know. Like there's actually a lot. Like I've never seen before. Right. You know, I, where we grew up in central Jersey, the funny that a blessing that I didn't appreciate was actually how diverse it was. Like yep. the notion of, you know, I, my the high school was felt like it was like 50, 50. I mean, mm-hmm. it was some Hispanic, but like you, the point was like, I, I I I didn't um, value that enough growing up, but then at Howard, like I I grew to appreciate there was a lot I didn't know, and one thing I realized is like man, like I was actually carrying a burden that you don't have to carry when you're at Howard, right? Like you don't have to worry about how the the, the kind of structure of the world and the way people look at black people will affect you, like while you're in this this beautiful bubble, yep, right? And so and so like from from that side of it to meeting black people from places I had never heard of. I didn't, I didn't personally leave the U S until I think like the summer of my junior year in college. And I went to Mexico for the first time. And then, but then I was like, Oh, like I need to now go travel the world. But like meeting people at Howard 
from different places and people who have been to different places. It, it, it wasn't even on my radar. Funny enough, when I chose my major, I, how, I literally asked my dad, what was your major? And he said his major was management. And I was like, my major is management. Going through Howard, like, there was so, like, it was just, it was, it was incredible. I remember when it was time to interview for a job, people saying, like, what companies are you thinking about? And I'm just like, all right, I'm trying to figure this out. There was just stuff like that. It was like, man, like, if, if you don't have exposure, yeah, you don't even know what's possible. Mm-hmm. I had never heard, like, I knew conceptually what Wall Street was, but I didn't know what an investment banker was. I didn't know what a hedge was. Like, like it, it just it just enabled me to know how much I didn't know, which is, is, also, is powerful in a way. And right. even today, like I have, I don't have like the ego issue about asking questions about what I don't know. Right. There are junior people on my team that know way more about their respective field. And I don't have that like, oh, because I have a certain title, I got to pretend I know everything. Like my team laughs at me all the time. We'll go on the meeting and I'll ask the most questions. Right. You, you both know this as well as anybody. Like, like I think I almost shed a tear. Like when I read Tom Nahisi Coates talk about what it felt like being on the yard. Yeah, yeah. man. And, and, like, the funny thing is, like, when I try to talk to people who aren't black about white privilege, like, I try to give them that example. Like, 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 like we feel a high from being able to experience what you have the luxury to experience every day. Right. Right. right? And so and so and so at least for that moment, that period of time to be in that bubble, you know, felt 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 safe, felt secure, gave me confidence and and, and, and put like an even bigger battering in my back to want to go compete with anybody. Cause now I wasn't just showing up for, you know, the Brooks family, you know, I was showing up for Howard and, and I've always lived that way. Yeah. I'm showing up for Howard wherever I go. Like, you know, I, I have the benefit uh, of, of having gone to, you know, Howard university and Harvard business school, but there's only one real HU. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, I went to HBS too, but I went to, but I went to HU and everybody who knows what that is, knows what it is. So how did HBS then, you know, what, what did you learn there? Give me one lesson you learned there that, that definitely turned you again or, or a person you met. So, so I'll tell you what's funny is I, 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 there was a point in my career where I didn't believe I was going to go back to business school. Like I thought, you know, and if you just look at the timing of it, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, there was this tech wave and it, was, it turned into a bubble and a telecom bubble. And as that thing was moving, you know, I, like a lot of people were getting overconfident. Like I'm about, I'm going to be able to go find a startup. I'm a, I'm a you know, it's going to go public, we rich, blah, 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 blah. And so I, you know, after I spent a stint at BET, I went to a telecom startup in Denver that promptly went bankrupt. So then it was like, hmm. Oh, okay. Cause the telecom bubble burst. What do I do? You know, pack my stuff, my little unemployment checks, went to the Dominican Republic. And basically in the mornings, learn Spanish and in the afternoons, wrote business school applications. And so what that afforded me was the opportunity to really be thoughtful about like why I wanted to go, what I wanted to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I went to HBS, I think the funny thing, again, is it's not not dissimilar from Howard. I understood that like my world actually was still small compared to what was available to me when I again started the school with 900 amazing people had all been successful and had aspirations of doing more. Like everybody walked in there with the view of like, you know, if I do what I can do right, I'm going to change the world. And I look at my peers, a lot of them are doing just that amazing things. Um, and, th- and that's all a network now that I can reach into and I have great relationships to, but it also just opened my eyes to possibilities, just things that, that, that I hadn't had thought of. And so, um, HBS gave me a chance to, to kind of, um, 
you know, make sure I was dreaming big enough. Mm. The, the other thing is, too, it, it was after working for a couple of years, I actually enjoyed the idea that, like, these were two years where I could just sit around and just think about stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, we could debate things. Like, like, <laughs> like once you're, you know, once you're working and raising kids, like, you know, at time, like, you got to be focused on the goal. Like, you got to focus on what you need to deliver. But, like, that, that MBA experience, like, it really is. Like, you sitting there with really smart people, and at HBS, it's the Socratic method. So your teacher's not telling you what it is. The teacher's pulling it from different students and making it this, like they, they're really orchestrating this discussion to pull it out. And and it is one of those things where like you you are amazed by some of the genius you hear and you are amazed by some of the stupidity you hear. Like people say certain things they just like. I remember there was a particular case that I won't spend a lot of time on it, but there was a particular case that talked about um Rudy Giuliani. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 what they were talking about was his leadership post 9-11. Like how he took control, how he moved, and there were a lot of people, you know, particularly people that were from overseas, um, that were just, you know, they were giving him a lot of flowers, saying like, no, he 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 jumped in, he was vocal, he was present, he was attentive, da 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 da. And I remember like looking around the room at my black section mates, like, who's gonna get this? Is it gonna be me? Is it gonna be you? Like, <laughs> like what we're not gonna do is sit here and not talk about Rudy Giuliani's track record with black people. Like, right. We're not gonna do that. Right? Like, like, like I, that, that doesn't discredit. We're not going to paint him as the superhero for New York because mm-hmm. he was a superhero for New York in some ways. And people, but like, what we're not going to do is, uh, like, what I can't do is allow you to go back to your world and not understand again that in this country, my people have been systematically treated in a way that we got to make sure you hear about and know about, so that when you hear me later fighting for my people, you have context to understand why I'm saying the things I'm saying. Right. So, and so it was, a, it was a great experience. I mean, I, like I, 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 I've been blessed. Man. Like I, I love both of my educational experiences. Like I, I can't, like if I can say, just, just do what I did and you like, you know, for me, they, 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 they were perfect. I got a I got game. It. I want you to play with it with me. Okay. There's no wrong answers, but for every question, you got to give two answers, right? One is a business application one is a social impact application all right so so i'm gonna give you a technology you tell me an idea how you might use it you know to further the empire and also how you might help your people with the application of that tech okay that's right right, right. let's let's go let's go with the with the lowball joint first let's start with um extended reality augmented reality vr what's a, a business application that you that you like like and then what is one that you think a way that it might be able to help your people so it's funny my first gut reaction was almost just one in the same two different sides of the same answer but I, but I, I, I will give you I, I'll, I'll change that up right so um for, for the business side um I, I like the space of like immersive experiences right I like the idea that like and, and, and look we God willing, we're on the other side of the pandemic. And so like, that's not a thing we'll have to live with forever. But I like the idea that technology is developing enough so that like if you were at some point, if you were like a real estate agent and you wanted to show me a house in North Carolina because you, you sold me on moving there, I could put on like a VR headset and mm-hmm. literally walk around, you know, a house and be able to have an experience that felt real enough that I would say, all right, I've seen enough. I can make an offer. You know, I still got to do inspections and all that stuff. But like, like that to me, like when you think about like translating that into different industries, yeah, right, like become superpower. Think about even like medical school, right? You're in medical school, 
you put on the headsets and you go in the body. Like you right. go, you can, like, like that stuff is, is amazing to me. Like, like, like the, the fact that you can do that. And that leads me to like the, the social impact piece is the training piece of this, right? Like, so what, what, what I would expect as the cost of the technology drops for at least some portion of training across a lot of different fields, you should be able to execute some of it that way. So that when you start talking about creating efficiencies of training people in communities that don't have the same amount of money, you can do enough through that. So, so like, so say for example, you know, um, you want to train somebody to be a pilot, right? Like, you know, it's, it's a great career. People make they do it for a long time. You probably get great benefits. Like, you could do some certain amount this way, so that you're saving the money, so that you're you're actually only spending the money on the hours you have to spend in the air, like things like that. That's not a great example, but like just the idea that like anything you want to teach somebody. If you can lower the cost through immersive experiences, through augmented reality, um, and then and then optimize that time where you have to actually have experiential, I think is valuable because things like labs, things like you know those things are expensive in real life, but to the extent you can replicate them in ways that are dependable, consistent, and reflect yep. reality yep. close enough. So like democratizing like, training. Democratize. I, I like that word. That's, that's exactly. It. That's fantastic. Five G. So. 5G is, is an interesting one for me. Like when I think about like, so the, 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 the business applications of being able to just, you know, give people more content faster, more reliably, like, I, I, like, like what you find, and, and we've seen this with processing power and other things, if you give smart people enough stuff to play with, they'll invent the solutions that we're not even thinking. Like, you know what I mean? Like if you think about like when they were in the whatever, like the, the, the early days of figuring out what the internet could be like they yeah. weren't thinking about tinder like but but like but 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 like think about like it's a serious like you know what i mean real businesses real opportunities came out and so like when i think about 5g broadly and look i to, to be frank like i'm not close to like the the nuance of like what that technology enables but like again like if you are if you are enabling a democratization of high-speed internet through new technology like you are now giving additional minds the capacity to play. Right. right. So those next ideas are going to come out of different types of places because now we can all play on a level field. It's the same way like with the mobile phone, right? The mobile phone leapfrogged to ne- traditional telecom infrastructure. So you get great ideas that are coming out of India first, that come out of Africa first, because the the, the mobile phone made the playing field level. Right. Um, right. You know, that's one where, again, like to me, the, the social impact just bleeds in the same yep. framework. Right? Access. Like, it, it's not a different framework. Like the key is access, yep. right? Like one of the things that, that broke my heart early in the pandemic was the, a picture I saw. It was two young girls who were sitting in, in the lot, not the lobby, like the parking lot of a Taco Bell because that's where they could get free Wi-Fi. Like yep. trying to do work, trying to be in school. And it's just like, man, like we can't, the wealthiest country on the planet can't do better than that. Like that, like that, that's the optimal solution for our children. And so I like to believe through 5G and the development of, of that technology, like we're better able to kind of give access to people who don't have enough. This feeds into Maurice's uh, socialist views, which are maybe diametrically opposed to, you know, you diehard capitalist view. That's an interesting thing. Like you both see the same problem, yeah. right? And, my, and tech, yeah, my. tech can, can be the solution, but who's going to pay for it or who's not going to take the profit for it? So, so I think that I think the I think the question we would have to, to wrestle with for me is like, where do we draw the line at, at, as a natural right? Like, what's a natural right? 
right? Like we in our country cheat education as a natural right. Like there's a public school system to give everybody access. It, 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 you have a right to it no matter what. Huge debates whether health care is one of them, right? Like mm-hmm. that's a big debate. I'd make the case that like at a certain level, we start to have to think like, is technology one of them? Like, like it, it, is there a certain level of technology that 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 if if you were blessed to be you won the lottery and you were in you're born on this soil or you arrived in this soil, should you now have the natural right to this stuff? And, and and I think that's where you start saying, okay, cool, that becomes an industry that has a little baseline. That's not to say everything has to be nationalized, but it is to say like there's a base level commitment. If you want to gain the profits from that come from technology at a certain level, you have to be willing to provide some base level plan for that 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 is a universal right. Like that that's where I think that debate would eventually go. Okay. There's I think there's the the ethical consideration, right? Which alludes to what Brendan is talking about. Because my my immediate thought is give it away. That's just in, in general, my immediate thought is give it away. Uh in terms of making it democratic, right? So we know that we've we've described in terms of the information superhighway we have said that black and indigenous people of color uh, have been have been trapped on the on-ramp. And the question to me, part of the ethical question is to what extent can and should money be a factor that prohibits us from moving from the on-ramp to the digital highway? And second, for those who end up with the access and the means to do the gatekeeping, what obligation do they have when, in the greater context, those kids that you're talking about sitting at the, the Taco Bell, the 7-Eleven, or the McDonald's who are doing the war chalking like we used to do in the early 2000s just to be able to turn their math homework in? At what point does the ethical responsibility say, yeah, I have to give it to these kids rather than find a way to charge them or someone else by proxy and thus delay it getting to them or potentially like you mentioned in healthcare, the healthcare in our country, we have made the decision that certain people just aren't going to get healthcare. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a passive decision that we make through all of our, through all of our different capitalistic machinations and how we vote. But we have made a We have made a decision as a country that we are going to have people who don't have healthcare. So yeah. that's the challenge. I think that, that, um, and I don't know that there's a question to that, right? I'm just, no, I'm just yeah. presenting that in terms of. So how do you all, how do you all wrestle with? Yeah, with no, that? I, I, I think in some respects, like we're, we're saying the same thing, right? Like, like using healthcare as an example. Other countries have decided it's just a right. Like you just have a right to it as a citizen, and it's just a part of it. We're not there as a country. I'm suggesting that like there could be a world where we say, given our ability to evolve technology, given the ne- the need to have our people be equipped to compete in a future that's technology-based, there could be a level of access that is universal. I'm not saying that's the right answer or not. The thing I also think, though, like, again, switching to the capitalist hat, like, I, I genuinely believe every market inefficiency is a profit opportunity, right? So, like, when you start to see inefficient markets like that, there are opportunities for people that are entrepreneurially minded to figure out a way to solve a problem. And if you solve a pain like somebody's going to be willing to pay you for it. The question is, should we as a people say, you know, yes, it should be paid for. So I'm OK with having a portion of my tax dollars pay for that. Or should we put the burden on people to do that individually? And I think that's the that that's really the the, 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 the core of what we get at. And, mm-hmm. I, and I, you say 
give it away, you know, at the end of the day, somebody's still paying for it. We're just saying we, we are collectively agreeing that our tax dollars will pay to be able to give this universally to everybody else. But the, but the entrepreneur in that situation is still rewarded for getting that contract, creating that infrastructure, whatever, right? Because otherwise, what incentive does one have to go do those things? Right. Yeah. No, it's a good it's a good point because what you're saying is that both viewpoints exist and all we're talking about is where the oil meets the water. You know, like yep. where's the level? That yep. that's yep. a good way to think about it. Last one. You could either answer in the blockchain or you could answer uh more specific use of blockchain and that's non-fungible tokens. Which one yep. you like? Talk about it. From the NFT space, what I really get excited about is the idea that creatives are empowered to continually profit from their works, right? Like if I'm a creative, I create a piece of work, I sell it as an NFT, any future transactions I'm able to get paid on. And like, that's a real thing. You think about it in the art world, right? Like when, I guess it was a couple years ago, Puff bought the Kerry James Marshall painting for, you know, $21 million. Like Kerry James Marshall didn't get a dollar of that. Mm, right. He, right. Got to paint, he got to paint another one to get the, paid. The person who sold that, right? The, who, who gave that to Sotheby's to auction off, got, got paid on that. So the idea that in the future there's a world where like artists can get paid. Like the thing I actually like about like the blockchain, you know, NFTs as an example, like where somebody, where people exist in the process just to solve for a lack of trust, right? Like they're able to collect rents because of a lack of trust. And this idea that like this technology enables to, in a technology way, make guarantees, I think it makes things more efficient. And I like to believe eventually it will help reward the creatives um, with more uh, of, of their pie, right? Because if I can trust you because of the way this thing is set up, I don't have to pay auditors as much. I don't have to pay lawyers as much. So I'm keeping more of what I generate. And so... You know, that's where I kind of see that um, from the perspective of like how, how it's going to be a great business opportunity. Like, I like the idea of creatives being more empowered. Um, what I still haven't figured out, I'm just open minded to this, I'm trying to learn, is I, I, I see that in the world of one of ones or one mm -hmm. of a limited amount. Yeah. Like, I, I still can't get my head around this concept that, like, if I go buy an NBA clip of a LeBron dunk, but if that dunk is, I can just go on Google and watch it, or I can go on ESPN and watch it. Like, why is that valuable? And people give me the trading card example, but I'm not there yet. I, I, I got to get there. But I, but I think this bubble around NFTs will get shaken out, and we'll see something that come out of it that nobody's thinking of. But I, but but if 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 the net result is that creators capture more of the value for the stuff they create, then it's a great thing. Yep. Um, and then when it when it relates to to a social good, like. I don't, I don't have an answer, actually. Like, I, 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 don't, I don't know yet. Like, I haven't thought enough about, like, the applications. And it's just a thing to say, like, what I love about these early stages, and you think about, like, the Internet in 95 or 92, like, when we were all on whatever it was, Netscape or whatever. Whatever, AOL, the, the AOL like, CDs. Yeah, like, the applications you see now, like, we weren't even, we couldn't even fathom that. So that's what I get excited about, that the thing that, like, I, like I'm going to be like, who? Who was the genius that figured out how this could be applied this way? So I'm looking forward to that. Um, but but like if in a world where we think about empowering our people, like if it enables us to do more with what we have and level the playing field, then, then I'm all for it. There it is.